Hello, good evening and good day everybody. Welcome to the 93rd live episode of the Ask Abhijit show. I hope you're doing well, all of you. And uh, let me see who all is there. Let me greet all of you. I can see Umbrella Corporation, Super Duper, Abir, Megdeep, Divyang, Prachit, Gala Emperor, Saucy, Praful, DK Boss, Dungar Singh Chauhan, Arya, Music and Education, Siddharth, Siddhant, Komal, Amit, Oldie, 98 years, Sakshat, Aryan, Chiching, Akash, Rathor, Makper, Daniel D'Souza, Sarthak, Anthony Mack, Omkar, Greater India, Vijay Vaghela, Ramit Thakur, Killer Joker, Trupti Patil, Prachit, Lovdeep, Shivaji Raji, Deepak Sai, and lots of other people. Good evening, good day to all of you. It is great to be back amongst you all. So let's get right into it. There are a great number of questions that you all have asked. I have picked up a bunch of those and let's get into the questions right away. So this is by Ishan and Ishan says, why is the West so afraid of Mr. Putin? Is it primarily because he has access to the largest nuclear arsenal in the world or are there more reasons to it? Well, Mr. Putin represents a different kind of... uh, he, of course, is a threat to the West. Like you said, he uh, owns the largest nuclear arsenal in the, uh, in the world. The Russian nuclear arsenal is uh, larger than that of the US, and they have the technology to back it up. They have the delivery systems to back it up. They have uh, ICBMs. They have uh, nuclear submarines, and they have all kinds of other delivery mechanisms. So that is one reason for that. The other thing is that the Russia controls a very large landmass across Eurasia. They have access to so many resources. Even if you put sanctions on them, they will be able to re- remain self-sufficient. They are a very powerful nation. And in and if they ally with China, then they can set up a separate parallel system, global system. They could try to do that. And that represents a threat to uh, essentially what uh, is American hegemony. So for the longest time after 1991, you had a unipolar world. There was only one superpower, the US. We still have only one superpower, but we have a rising power, which is China, which uh, has a very uh, significantly large economy, uh, more than 14, 15 trillion dollars worth today. And if they uh, tie up with Russia, then it it represents a significant threat to U.S. hegemony over the world. Uh, So that's one of the reasons why the Americans see... uh, When we talk about the West, we're talking about the U.S. Because the major power, the dominant power, the hegemonic power in the West is nothing but the U.S. Even in Europe, the dominant power is the U.S. in Western Europe. So when we talk about the West, we're talking about the United States. So that's the reason why they are... You could say that they are afraid of Mr. Putin, not because he is all-powerful today, but because he could become, or Russia could become, under his guidance, under his uh, direction, a more dangerous and a more powerful nation in the future. And uh, the US doctrine has always been to never allow another large power to rise. They They have made a mistake when it comes to China, and they don't want to repeat the mistake when it comes to Russia. So even when Mr. Putin 20 or so years ago, when he was when he expressed uh, a desire to join NATO, so he was rebuffed and they did not allow Russia to join NATO, which would have brought Russia into the US orbit. So they did not allow that and they kept expanding NATO eastward in breach of the guarantee they had given. 
and that's how it is so they see the the russians as a long term threat especially when it comes to a, a possible alliance with china and that's why we are seeing all the geopolitical action that we are seeing today so that's that's the reason why Shankhajit says, why didn't Russia use its best fighter jets, drones, or state-of-the-art technology like S-400 or 500 in Ukraine, but allowed the Ukrainians to shoot down a number of its warplanes, helicopters, tank and tanks, and kill so many soldiers? Is the Russian military as powerful as we think it to be? Okay, so first of all, uh, you're saying that uh, the Ukrainians have shot down a large number of warplanes and helicopters. They have destroyed lots of tanks and killed so many soldiers. So... On what basis do you, have you reached this conclusion that so many uh, so many casualties have happened among Russia's soldiers and so many tanks, planes, etc. have been destroyed? From where did you obtain this data? Is it the propaganda you have been seeing on on Twitter, on the Western media, on YouTube, on, on and on various Indian news channels? There are a couple of at least two three news channels in India which are reporting from Ukraine. They are embedded within the Ukrainian forces more or less, and they are and they are. Um, uh, the news that they are relaying to India represents the Western or NATO perspective of what's happening. And that, see, all sides indulge in propaganda. I am not making the claim that only one side is indulging in propaganda. But when it comes to the delivery mechanisms of information, only one side controls that. All of social media is based in the US. Whatever social media Indians consume is based in the US, right? All the media is based in the US. Even these India, Indian um, news agencies and media uh, channels, etc., they may have some kind of affiliation with the US in some form or the other, which may not be directly or indirectly visible. So what we are seeing is nothing but Western propaganda. The Russians are trying to do their own propaganda, but it's not visible anymore because it's been cut off, right? So in order to get a balanced perspective of what's happening, you have to look at both sides of propaganda. And then you can make your own deductions of what's really happening. Now, like I said the last time also, the best way to see what's really happening in Ukraine is to see a big picture perspective. See the maps. And if uh, I don't have the maps today. Last time I showed the maps, you could see clearly from day one to day three to day five to day 10, you could see the Russian control over Ukraine on the map, visibly represented on the map, increasing day by day. So you can see the Russians are doing very well when you look at the map. That's called a top-down approach of looking at information and data. But if you look at a bottom-up approach, if you look at this piece of information, that piece of news, and this piece of propaganda, that is a very haphazard way of looking at things, right? So from what I have seen personally, right? And I have been keeping track of what's happening in Ukraine from day one and before day one. So from what I have seen, there have been very few Russian casualties, soldiers, most likely less than 2,000. According to the media propaganda, like tens of thousands of Russians have died, which is absolute nonsense. Most likely there have been less than 2,000 Russian soldiers who have died. In a war, people die, especially combatant soldiers. When it comes to warplanes, helicopters, tanks, I mean, I have seen a couple of images of two, three tanks that have been destroyed in whatever region. And we don't know whether it's a Ukrainian tank or a Russian tank. They all have the same equipment, by the way, when it comes to helicopters, etc. Again, how do we know what helicopter it is? They, they all have the same equipment. What we do know is that within the first two to three hours, the Russian Russians 
uh, achieved complete air superiority over Ukraine, which means it took out all the Ukrainian air force and, and, and the radars and all the defense mechanisms. Right. So in the light of that, you may have some sporadic incidents of some helicopter taken down or something, but it's not really happened <laughs> on a large scale. So it is being made to look like the Russians have suffered lots of casualties. The, the Russian advance has been bogged down. All the various uh, so-called experts and think tank members, etc., all across Twitter and Facebook and everywhere are pouring out this information that seems to uh, uh, indicate that the Russians have done a terrible miscalculation and they are faring terribly in the war. But if you look at the map of the advance day by day, you can see that the Russians are advancing steadily. Right? It's not a lightning advance. It's not a blitzkrieg like we would imagine. We would imagine a blitzkrieg, a blitzkrieg kind of advance to take 24 hours or 48 hours and take over the old country. But blitzkrieg, the name blitzkrieg comes from the German advance into France in the Second World War. And their advance, this lightning warfare advance, blitzkrieg advance, was slower than the current Russian advance into Ukraine. So let's put things into perspective. Right. So uh, the Russians are, I think, uh, advancing steadily. They're doing reasonably well. If you if you disregard the propaganda to the to the opposite effect. Now, the question is, why didn't Russia use all the fighter jets and all those things which they do have? Right. Because they don't they don't want to destroy the country. If they had gone, if they had taken the approach that the Americans always take, whether it is Afghanistan, whether it is Iraq, whether it is uh, Libya or wherever, or Yemen, or 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 uh, the former Yugoslavia, they, the American approach is to go all out and, and flatten the country first. Nothing should live or breathe there, and then you walk in, and then you conquer the country. That's the American way, way. and it, it causes millions of casualties among civilians, as we know, right? I mean, the so-called war on terror has killed at least six million civilians, right? And and when we when it comes to uh, the the invasion of Iraq that uh, happened in the early 2000s, 2003, 2004, that, that around that time, that killed at least two million civilians in Iraq. Do you can you comprehend the number two million? Right? The Russians don't want to do that. They have the firepower. The jets, the 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 machinery, the armed uh, armed uh, capability, the army, uh, the the military capability to completely flatten the country of of Ukraine in 24 to 48 hours. They have desisted from doing that. They could have done an all-out attack of the what what's known as the so-called shock and O approach. Bring in all your heavy bombers, uh, shoot thousands of cruise missiles and other missiles, just flatten everything and then walk in. We won. But that's not what they want to do, right? They want to take the country more or less intact. They just want to change the regime. They want to uh, remove the uh, the puppet regime and install their own puppet regime. They want to remove the puppet regime that's been installed by the Americans and they want to install a pro-Russia puppet regime, right? So it's not about doing what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's bad. It's all about power. They want to regain control over the country. So that's what they're doing. And they don't want to destroy the country. The best way to take a country is to take it intact. Right? So that's what they are trying to do. And that's why they have not used all the latest weapons, the best fighter jets, drones, and all the, all those things. They don't want to do it. They don't want to destroy the country. 
it's not an enemy country they don't they don't see it as an enemy country they see ukraine as their own territory that has been taken away from them so they want to take it back more or less intact with as little damage as possible and as few civilian casualties as possible that is what the approach seems to be given the pattern we have observed over the past uh, few days ever since the uh, intervention in ukraine began Okay, a couple of questions here. Kirtana says, is there any possibility of India and China entering into an agreement of some sorts, especially after Russia and China's closeness? Will this ongoing scenario help in improving India-China relations in some way? And Akash says, the relations of Russia and China with the West are well known to be unsatisfactory to say the least. Uh, Russia and China have come closer in the last few years. Russia and India have always been pretty fine. The US have always supported Pakistan over India. Why doesn't China act smartly and make friendly gesture towards India, leaving the crippled Pakistan alone, at least till the time the supremacy of the West can be put to rest, put down to rest? Well, it's still early days in the in the current scenario. Uh, the Ukraine invasion, the Russian intervention in Ukraine began uh, in in the third or fourth, I think, in late February, right? And we are currently in uh, more or less mid March. So it's still early days in the in the conflict, and uh, as we know, like uh, both of you have pointed out correctly, the, the Chinese and the Russians have a reasonably close relationship. You could not, you could possibly construe it to be a kind of an alliance. How long will it last is to be seen. But yes, they are cooperating, they are coordinating their approaches, and there seems to be some sort of uh, understanding, uh, satisfactory understanding between them. Now, the question is, is there a possibility of some kind of rapprochement between India and China? Well, uh, it could happen. I mean, it's still early days, like I say, like I say, uh, this this is going to be this this could just be the start of the conflict, right? If you look at the history of, let's say, World War two, uh, it starts when does it start? thirty eight, thirty nine there some somewhere around that. I don't remember the exact days, dates, the years, but you know, um, the Americans did not get involved into the in in the war for like two three years. It's only I think in forty one that the Americans got involved, and the Germans had been taking country after country at that point. So I I don't think the world at that at that point in time even knew that they were in the middle of a world war. Right? It's only later that they realized that we, what we went through was the Second World War. So who knows what we are in right now? And it's still very early days. You're just two, three weeks into it. As the situation evolves, the Chinese in the coming year or two may consider it to be wise to make some kind of agreement uh, with India. It is possible. And if it is a mutually beneficial agreement, then even India may be open to that sort of thing. And the stumbling block is the border the border demarcation the chinese have vehemently refused to demarcate the border and it is in it has they have considered it to be uh, beneficial for them to have an undemarcated border between india and tibet chinese occupied tibet because that gives them the opportunity to keep needling india and keep pressurizing india militarily from higher ground in tibet in order to keep India off balance and uh, to keep India feeling insecure all the time. Because in the last 30 years, the Chinese have gone way ahead of us economically and militarily. If you have a larger economy, you will have a larger military proportionately. 
so they see that as a, a way of uh, keeping their advantage uh, of of driving home constantly driving home their advantage over india they don't want india to be stable they don't want india to feel secure they always want india to be, to feel cons- constantly off balance so india always has these these problems and india will not be able to rise uh, to the extent that it should because they see india as the only potential rival in asia right but if the things go badly in the coming uh, couple of years 2 3 years then they may f- find it to be beneficial for them to perhaps enter into some kind of agreement or cooperate cooperation with india it's possible so i would say it's still early days we have to see how things evolve the americans are right now putting a lot of pressure on india as well to capitulate to give up and become a full-fledged vassal state of the us and to denounce what russia is doing and just slide headlong into the nato kind of situation and then they can take over the whole country in a variety of ways right through democracy and through subnational diplomacy and whatever else they call it which is essentially neo colonization so that's what they would like to see happen in india the americans and india is resisting that so let's see how things goes it is certainly something that could happen in the future a kind of uh, alliance between india china and russia but the precondition for that to happen is that india and china should demarcate the border the final demarcation should be done if that happens then uh, then there could be an alliance or agreement between india and china so depending on how things go if the uh, let's say russia doesn't do well the chinese are hoping the russians will do well and they will support russia and slowly they will build a parallel system to the to the western system as an alternative for other countries who are tired of the western meddling and interference in their internal affairs whether it is asia whether it's africa or other countries they may even uh, want japan or other countries to come into that you know possibly as uh, if if they succeed in cons- constructing such a system an alternative system but if russia doesn't do well in the coming Two three years, then the Chinese may feel isolated, and then they may want to explore other options. So all the uh, possibilities are open right now, right? So it all depends on how this goes, how the current thing goes. We are still very much in the early days. Uh, if the Russians do well and the Americans are not able to destroy the country thoroughly, then certain scenarios may emerge. If the Russians do poorly and the Chinese feel that this uh, supporting russia in the long run will not work out then a whole different set of scenarios opens up so these possibilities are all open right now in the next 2 3 years who knows what will happen we may even end up seeing an india china alliance the possibility is remote but it is not zero so it could happen in the next 2 2 3 or 5 years it could happen let's see how it goes i cannot make a prediction because there are too many variables that are currently unknown but it is a possibility okay tejas says should india bring, bring back indian gold from the bank of england seeing that the seeing the current anti india narrative in england i think the figure is as as huge as 300 tons might be a wrong figure this is an interesting question by tejas so uh, as from what i last remember uh reading india has more than 400 or more than 450 tons of gold uh that is uh, stored in two banks in the west one is the bank of england the other one the, the other one 
is i don't remember the name of the bank it's a bank in switzerland so there are two banks in which india has stored large quantities of gold the total amount is most likely more than 450 tons of gold and uh, we see it as securely uh, stashed away over there and i think we must be earning some interest on it but like tejas says is it a good idea to bring all that gold back to repatriate all the all the gold from the west because as we know if your treasure if your assets are in somebody else's hands it's very likely that in in the case uh, the situation changes or the relationship between the two sides deteriorates they may confiscate your property because it's lying in their custody it is likely it is possible that such a thing may happen i mean uh, recently they have confiscated lots of russian assets in the last couple of weeks in the past they even confiscated the assets of other other countries i don't remember which south american or central american country it was but even that was done so if your valuable assets are in the custody of another country it is always a possibility that if things go ra- if, if things go wrong then they will confiscate it and you will be left with nothing so i think it may not be a bad idea at all for india to repatriate its gold from the bank of england and that other bank which is in switzerland i mean we have a large country a vast country a subcontinent size country i am sure we can uh store this gold in various locations across the country securely i'm sure we can do it we may not be uh, if we do that if we repatriate the gold we will no longer be able to accrue some interest on it but that's okay it is better to have what what belongs to you back in your country then uh, gamble on getting a little bit of interest and uh, you may end up losing everything so i think it may not be a bad idea for india to in the coming days repatriate all of its gold back to india so that's an interesting question dhruv koshik says uh yeah all right thank you dhruv uh, my question is that the us has banned oil imports from russia Russia is offering crude oil to India at a discounted price. So, should India accept this deal and accelerate its growth by using this cheap energy supply? In your opinion, what should India do to utilize this deal as well as not get into the list of Russia supporting nations of the West? You know what's interesting? Uh India used to buy a lot of oil from Iran or neighboring country Iran, almost neighboring country. So, when the relationship between the americans and the iranians went bad when it went south the americans arm twisted india they pressurized india into stopping its uh, its relationship of of buying oil from the iranians so india was no longer allowed by the americans to buy oil from iran do you understand what that means the americans can decide what kind of foreign policy india should pursue what does it tell you america has a lot of influence in india i mean it's all arm twisting it's all done by force it's coercion but they have that sort of influence in india and india when they demand such things india has no option but to accede to their demands and threats right so the americans forced india to stop buying oil from iran now and and what they have also done is that they have imposed a, a whole lot of sanctions on venezuela because venezuela is a country they don't like and because it's a socialist country and so on it's a country in south america i'm sure you know right 
So they had imposed sanctions on Venezuela. They, they were preventing other countries from buying oil from Venezuela as well. Now that they have blocked Russia uh, countries from uh, buying Russian oil, they again want to start buying oil from, from Venezuela. Right? So that is the kind of policy they have. When it suits them, they will do it. When it doesn't suit them, they'll do something else. But for us, we have to dance to their whims and fancies for India. Right? So when they demand that we should stop buying oil from a certain country, we have to immediately comply. But next week, if they feel like again start uh, starting to, if they feel like uh, buying it again from that country, then they will do it. So there is no consistency in their behavior. Right? So that, that's what I would like to offer to all of you first, that there is no consistency. They, they talk about a rules-based system. There are no rules. The rules change every five minutes. It, the rules change on their whims and fancies depending on what is best for their country. But what's best for us doesn't matter. We just have to obey their orders. Right? That's how it is. So the question today is, should India buy cheap crude oil from Russia? Obviously, it is in India's interest to buy cheap oil wherever it comes from. And we have a good relationship with Russia. Now, the Americans obviously won't like it. But the, other, the, but the real question is, is India in a, in, a, in, a, in a position to buy large quantities of crude oil from Russia? Does India have storage facilities? That's the question. Uh, it appears that India does not have large storage uh, capabilities. I mean, I remember reading a few years ago, like three, four, five years ago, that India was constructing large underground, underground caverns for storing uh, enormous quantities of crude oil, you know, strategic oil reserves. I'm not sure how far that has progressed, but it appears that as of today, India doesn't have the kind of capacity we should have in order to be able to benefit from such a windfall that a country offers us very cheap crude oil. I am not sure if India has the capability, the capacity to store large quantities of such oil. So in case we have some leftover space in which we can store crude oil, it may not be a bad idea to buy cheap crude oil from Russia. Of course, the Americans won't like it. And India may have to face some repercussions from for, for doing that. So yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a question that India should consider uh, seriously. But it is also, uh, we have to consider the pros and cons. First of all, do we have the cap capacity to store a large quantity of uh, cheap crude oil if it comes in? Do we have the capacity? Secondly, if we do have the capacity, if we do have the storage uh, capacity, then is it a good idea to risk uh, the wrath of the US if we buy the, the Russian oil? Because the Americans are already very, very kind of, kind of furious with India because India has... Uh, not bent its knee to American demand this time when it comes to voting against Russia in the UN Security Council resolutions. India has refused to vote against Russia. So there is this tsunami of blowback that's coming on India privately, publicly, publicly on social media and other places as well. And there must be diplomatic uh, uh, repercussions also and other things also. So if India goes ahead and does one more thing like this and buys crude oil, then we could face some bigger repercussions from the US, maybe sanctions of some kind, who knows, anything is possible. They're already talking about sanctions, uh, the CATSA sanctions, C-A-A-T-S-A sanctions, because India has bought the Russian S-400 uh, missile defense system. So the Americans are, are not happy about that also. They may, they are still considering, they're still threatening that they may impose the CATSA sanctions on India. So we have to see how that goes. So they are already pressurizing us, they are already threatening us. 
and if we do this then there could the, the threat could really materialize so uh, the thing is when it comes to the us there's always a threat on your head they are the global hegemon they are the guy with the biggest stick and the stick is always ready to fall on your head if you don't behave and if you don't dance to their whims and fancies so that's where we are so it is obviously a good thing for india if we have the storage capability this storage capacity to buy cheap crude oil from russia but what are the consequences of doing that that is what india needs to consider if it has if we have the extra storage capacity okay akash says i am learning uh, data science and artificial intelligence from iit madras my question is this inexorable technology is bound to enter every nook and corner of modern industries can isro and drdo also benefit from this uh, as i would be glad to put my mind in developing national strength instead of increasing profits of us based mega corporations how crucial can this be in the near future i mean a very good question uh, data science and artificial intelligence machine learning all of that is crucial in today's world uh it has military applications it has non military applications it has geopolitical applications it's all about controlling the world and infiltrating the minds of people and so much more i mean uh, with data science you in artificial intelligence and machine learning you can do things like targeted advertising targeted propaganda ad- advanced image recognition facial recognition speech recognition you can do war gaming you can do predictive analytics you can do forecasting of all kinds of things you can indulge in bio warfare you can create new kinds of bio agents uh you can discover new kinds of bio bio agents using data science machine learning artificial intelligence you can do psychological profiling of people based on their public social media profile their aggregated uh, aggregated social media uh behavior and trends and patterns then you can indulge in cyber warfare you can create intelligent autonomous weapons systems combined with robotics that can be a game changer you can uh, do target recognition combat simulation combat training threat monitoring situation awareness situational awareness in the battle space domain and creating an integrated battle space when it comes to a warfare on a uh, in a real time manner so there is so much you can do with data science artificial intelligence machine learning neural networks all of those things the question is is india pursuing these things or not we have isro we have drdo we have uh, uh hal and all these other uh, organizations are they agile enough are they pursuing these technologies we also have quantum computing which is a very important uh, technology a very important and interesting frontier of science that is currently under development is india pursuing that uh in case india is pursuing all these things then yeah it is it is uh, it would be great to have intelligent uh, young people uh, joining the effort in building up these technologies developing these technologies for india's benefit the easy solution is to migrate to the west and work as a as a glorified cyber coolie to build uh, to build the platforms for the west which they will use eventually in the long run against all other countries right so in the 1960s and 1970s lots of indians especially from kerala etc they went to the gulf countries and they exchanged their time for a little bit of money and they built up what is now all the glittering cities of dubai abu dhabi all that they, those were fishing villages it is indian labor and indian talent that constructed all these cities but who owns the cities it is the arabs who own the cities 
and what indians got in return was a little bit of money which they sent back to 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 their families in in kerala etc right so the same thing is now happening in the cyber domain indians want to be middle class want to be want to live comfortable middle class lives uh, so they will be they are willing to exchange their time for a little bit of money and create all of this priceless intellectual property for the west so what india needs to do is give indians the opportunity to do the same for india i mean we need the private sector to to contribute in this and the government also to contribute in this uh, so drdo is a, is a, is an organization that could really uh, contribute a lot to that but unfortunately drdo is very antiquated it is ossified the kind of system they have is is it it uh, the kind of structure that drdo has it's it's very bureaucratic very very stratified it it belongs in the 1960s i mean you you they have i don't know 25000 employees or so maybe 30000 employees and only 5000 of these employees at most are scientists so the majority more than 20000 employees are non scientific personnel and all the money that goes into drdo most of it is utilized in the salaries and all the other benefits that these non scientific personnel get so the majority of the money that goes into drdo is used for non scientific work so these organizations they need reforms they can be radically reformed and made more agile made more um, driven and in that if we if we can do that then they they could really contribute they could really transform the country so i hope that happens and uh, the thing is this these technologies they're going to like like akash says they they're going to enter every nook and cranny of the modern world they're going to penetrate your daily lives to an extent that you will not even realize so we need to also uh we need to ensure that india needs to ensure it doesn't get left behind uh so it's so the answer is it's really crucial that india develops these technologies the government needs to push this the private sector needs to get involved and if that happens it will be great for for young people in india people who want to contribute to the country they will be able to use whatever whatever uh, skills they learn whatever knowledge they acquire Uh, in in the course of their studies and they'll be able to use all this knowledge and and these skills for the benefit of the country so it is crucial that india develops these technologies india gets involved in this and i hope that people like akash young people like akash and many others like him uh, will get the opportunity to use their talents for the benefit of india instead of building up the intellectual capital for the west okay um what do you think about india's fighter attack jet making technological capabilities at present we all know the horrible time overrun in developing the tejas but do you think india has learned her lessons from the tejas ordeal and applied these those lessons in tejas mark 2 amca advanced medium combat aircraft and the twin engine deck based fighter also don't you think it will be beneficial to have a large number of one or two types of planes let's say 400 tejas instead of a lot of small numbers of different planes wouldn't it make maintenance and production cost difficult if you have if you have to maintain large numbers of different kinds of planes very good question so uh, yes we know that the tejas program the lca tejas program was delayed horribly for, for like it began in the early 1980s right the development of the plane and the 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 plane was given its the the fighter plane was given its final operational clearance only in the 2010s i'm not sure how many years ago it happened maybe 5 6 years ago at most 
right? So the entire process, it took more than 30 years to, to develop a basic fighter plane, a light combat aircraft. And the reason for this is not because our scientists are incompetent. It's because our politicians did not want this program to succeed. These politicians who were controlling the country, they were getting large amounts of... I'm, I'm See, I'm not saying all politicians were doing this, but I'm sure some were. So what happened is that the specifications of the fighter jet were repeatedly changed when they were about to 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 be uh, to to mature so when the development when you issue a certain set of specifications you want the length to be this much the width to be that much the wing wingspan should be these many meters uh, the weight should be maximum this and, and so on and so forth when you have a set of specifications the, the engineers can build a plane based on that but at the last minute when the plane is going to be finalized when you change the specifications you have to start the development from scratch again and if this happens repeatedly, then your uh, your program will be delayed by decades. And this is not only something that's happened with the Tejas, it's also happened with the HOL Maruth, a brilliant plane that was trashed by, by the Indian government. It was a brilliant fighter plane from the 1960s, the HOL Maruth. Firstly, what they did was they gave it a, an underpowered jet engine, so it was never able to, to perform to its full potential. And secondly, they did not allow... Um, the plane, the design to be developed further and to be made more mature and, and give rise to a Mark II version or or more uh, uh, versions or further iterations of the plane. So India could have had a whole family of fighter planes based on the HL Maruth today. But we just uh, sh shut down the program. Then we started the, the LC Tejas program in the, in the 1980s and it's only in the last four, five, six years that the that the uh, Mark I version uh, has been given its final operational clearance. I don't remember exactly which date it was. Look it up. I don't have the I don't have all the data stored in, in my memory, but it's reasonably recent. Now, what we have is a well function is a very good aircraft. It's a light aircraft. It's a small aircraft, but it functions very well. It's it's a very high quality aircraft. Don't listen to what some experts tell you. All right. There are certain experts who say it's a terrible plane. It's garbage. Please don't listen to them. Please don't. All right. Everybody has some motivations and some agendas. I'm not taking any names, but there are some people who say that. Forget about them. The fact is that the LCA Tejas Mark I is an exceptionally good aircraft. It's, it's not an exceptionally good aircraft. It's a very good aircraft. All right. And that serves as the foundation for future aircraft, which will be, uh, which will have modifications and enhancements which will give them a far better a, a better advantage than the what what so those will be will be more evolved aircraft so the tejas mark ii is going to be a different kind of aircraft it's going to be slightly larger than the than the mark one plane and it's going to have a number of improvements a lot of improvements over the mark one uh, version of the aircraft then you have the amca the advanced medium combat aircraft which will take all the lessons which our scientists and engineers learned during the process of making the LCA, Tejas Mark I, and they will not have to reinvent the wheel from scratch. They will take all of everything they learned and they're going to be able to, to, to have this uh, new aircraft flying within a decade or so. Right. And the same goes for the twin-engine deck-based fighter. So once you have the experience of developing a high-quality flying platform or fighter aircraft from scratch,
then you don't have to keep reinventing the wheel every time you design a new aircraft you already have what works you know what works you know what doesn't work you have learned through painful trial and trial and error what works what doesn't work so you can immediately apply it in the design and development of the new aircraft so every time you make a newer iteration a newer aircraft you learn more and more and it becomes easier and easier for you build better aircraft so i think india has learned all the uh, the lessons from the tejas ordeal and they will be applied they are already being applied in the the design and uh, creation of the new aircraft there are other aircraft also which are being which are being developed there is yeah let's not go there all right so that's what's happening india has learned the lessons we are de developing a number of aircraft now the other question is will it not be beneficial to have a large number of, of one or two types of planes instead of small numbers of lots of different kinds of planes so today we have a number of mig 21s a number of mig 29s we have the sukhoi 30s we have jaguars and uh, in the past we had all, we have we have the rafals as well and we have the lc tejas mark 1 then the mark 2 will come in so we have a large number of different models of aircraft right so it makes it complicates things you will need to acquire lots of different spare parts from lots of different suppliers you will have all kinds of different assembly lines and you will have mechanics who will have to specialize in one kind of aircraft and things like that so it complicates things instead of doing that if you have 300 sukhoi 30s 400 tejas aircraft mark 1 aircraft and uh, 400 tejas mark 2 aircraft let's say just three types of planes and eventually in the future 10 years down the line you will have uh, let's say 300 amcas and 200 uh, twin engine deck based fighters so if you have large numbers of aircraft but only two three models it simplifies things yes so it it uh, it is beneficial to do it that way especially if you are building your own aircraft in your own country if you don't have a foreign supplier it makes it, it makes things even easier so in the next 10 20 years india is going to indigenize everything and india is going to build its own fighter aircraft there will be a fourth generation aircraft hopefully a fifth generation aircraft as well and a twin engine deck based fighter for the for the aircraft carriers and all that all that so it makes maintenance easier if you are building your aircraft yourself and if you have fewer Air, aircraft models so yes you, what you are saying is absolutely right, absolutely right so that's the direction in which india needs to go india needs to stop buying planes aircraft and other military equipment from other countries and try to develop its own indigenous arms industry that will be the best way to go forward in the long run and it is going to be the thing that is the best for india's national interest Sidant says I read that India is planning to outperform China in the solar panel and semiconductor shortage crisis what other avenues can India explore to increase our influence and importance for other countries even further especially is there something we can provide to Russia that can potentially save them from becoming a chinese satellite uh, so uh, india is not planning to outperform country x or country y india is planning to become a major power when it comes to solar panel technology solar uh, energy altogether and in uh, in the semiconductor industry because right now as as i think everyone would know there is a semiconductor shortage crisis which was precipitated by the whole covid uh, pandemic so semiconductors these microchips etc they they are 
everywhere they are required everywhere from automobiles from 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 cars to washing machines to computers to everything and if there's a shortage of that prices go up things uh, these appliances and these devices their availability becomes uh, reduced and so on so it's it's a big problem so india uh, this government the current government has realized how crucial semiconductor the, how crucial the semiconductor industry is and the chip manufacturing industry is for the national security of the country so india is planning to india is in the process of setting up uh, this industry in india on a large scale and hopefully in the next decade in the next 10 years india will become a major semiconductor uh, um, and microchip uh, etc uh, power in the world you know the industry should take off hopefully in the next 10 years that is the plan that has been uh, designed and it is being implemented right now and also when it comes to solar panels and the solar industry because india has this enormous surfeit of solar uh, of, of solar power so that all, all the sun that we get india is a very sunny country we can utilize it to generate solar power and that that is obviously a green thing to do right uh, climate change and all that. So yeah, that's what India is doing. Now, what other avenues can India explore to in increase our influence and importance for other, other countries even further? India needs to become a manufacturing powerhouse. It's as simple as that. Manufacturing all kinds of things. And if you manufacture things, your technological prowess also improves. You become more advanced technologically. And that's good for the country. So the thing is, when you manufacture all kinds of devices and all kinds of commodities yourself in-house in your own country, you don't need to import those things from abroad. That way, your economy grows. You save on foreign exchange. You don't have to send money to others to get their, their uh, commodities. You are able to uh, manufacture everything yourself. And if, you manufacture, if your manufacturing industry is good enough, then you can even export those commodities to other countries if you are manufacturing things that they need. And that grows your economy. So that's what the Chinese used in the past 30 years to become... An economic giant. Now, as we know, the world is trying to look for options other than China. The world is trying to decouple China to some extent because they uh, understand, they realize that this is uh, creating a monster to some extent. So India could offer an alternative if India gets its gets uh, its house in order. Yeah. So the best way to increase to increase our influence and importance and our stature uh, economically and globally, etc., is to become a manufacturing powerhouse, a manufacturing superpower. That's what India needs to do. If you look at the history of the world, countries that manufacture and countries that, that export more than they import, they inevitably become uh, major economies. And that's what happened to India historically, always. India was always an export, a net exporter, always of various goods and commodities throughout its history. And that's why India was always the largest economy in recorded history until the, in the last 500, 600, 700 years. Right. So that's what India needs to do. India needs to find ways of becoming a manufacturing powerhouse, a manufacturing superpower. Everything needs to be manufactured in-house. We need to stop importing things. We need to start becoming an exporter of all kinds of things. That's what India needs to do. How to do it, the government needs to figure out. We have experts in at all levels sitting there they need to figure out how to do this it's a challenge for sure it's a challenge but we need to do it somehow or the other so that's what needs to happen is there something we can provide to russia that can that can potentially save them from becoming a chinese satellite uh, 
see right now india has to look out for its own interest uh if india rises if india becomes a manufacturing power then maybe we can help russia in some way but our first priority has to be india everybody's first priority is their own national interest in the past for decades india and russia were close allies cooperating together but it is only because the, our india our national interests converged india was looking out for its own national interest in whatever way it was doing it and the russians were looking out for their own national interest and because the, the two converged that's why there was this cooperation and uh, you could call it an alliance of some kind so india needs to look out for itself first we, our our job is not to help other countries that are in need our job is first and foremost to help ourselves and to ensure that our people and our country will be guaranteed long term security and prosperity that's what we have to worry about we our job is not to help other countries in need that is not our job it is the job of every country to look out for their own best interests and that's what india needs to do Shazam says the recent government restrictions on NGOs please explain how will it change india's geopolitical scenario in the coming years um i am not quite sure of what exactly the details are of various uh, restrictions on NGOs i think there would be some fcra restrictions etc fcra is the foreign currency regulation act and the thing is this okay let's look into what a ngo is what's an ngo ngo stands for non governmental organization which means that it is an organization that is not in any way linked to the government or any government and it usually uh, ngo typically works in 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 the field of social welfare uplifting society and doing things like that so that's what an ngo is now what you will find in india is that there are more ngos in india than schools and hospitals put together isn't that strange so NG, the ngo industry seems to be booming in india i mean it was booming in the past uh, the i mean about 10 years ago you had more ngos in india than schools and hospitals put together so why is was this industry so lucrative ngos are supposed to be supposed to be a uh, mostly non profit things right and yet if you look at uh, take any ngo at random which is doing reasonably well and you will find that their employees have very high salaries and where does the money come from and these are the questions that typically obviously arise right and ngos are allowed to get, get to obtain funds from abroad through the fcra act all that and the thing is that if you if you trace back the kind of uh, funding that some ngos receive you will find that they are linked to very dubious organizations from abroad many of these organizations that are funding indian ngos have links to foreign governments all right so this term ngo non governmental organization even though it's te- technically a ngo it many of these ngos are basically nothing more than than agents of foreign governments and what we find that there are lots of ngos that go to the indian judiciary uh, start these they 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 file pils public interest litigations that are taken seriously by the judiciary and they are able to influence public policy in india so ngos indian ngos that are more or less puppets of certain foreign powers and forces are dictating and influencing public policy and govern, government policy 
inside India. So these NGOs have become a means of exerting foreign interference in India's internal affairs. Whether it comes to government policy, public policy, the kind of rules that are enforced in India, whether it comes to religious conversions or whatever else, you will find that all of this is happening through NGOs, via NGOs. So the term NGO is a misnomer. These uh, NGOs may not be related to the or linked to the Indian government, but many of them are extensions of foreign interests and they are acting on behalf of foreign governments. Mostly it is Western governments. There are some governments in the Middle East, some, some, some organizations in some Eastern countries, maybe some may be linked to China also. Who knows? I don't have the specific details, but this is how it's done. So there is this massive NGO industry in India. It's very lucrative. They get lots of funding from abroad. Their employees are typically very rich. Uh, not all, but some of them have very prosperous employees who get the salaries in terms of lakhs of rupees per month. Some of them do. Yeah. And they all, not all, but many of them act as conduits of foreign governments and foreign influences within India. So this is a huge national security threat for India. Right. The thing is, if you crack down on NGOs, then certain foreign powers will say they, that democracy is under threat in India. They will lower your democracy ranking in India. And when you go to that country, their head of state or their vice head of state will give our prime minister lectures about democracy, public lectures, things like that. So you see, there are multiple ways in which very powerful countries can interfere blatantly in the internal affairs of India. All right. When it comes to these so-called protests that happen every every winter season in North India, if you trace back the funding, see, no protest can happen without money. No extended protest that goes on for two, three weeks, months can ever happen without a significant amount of funding and logistics. It's not just funding. You need a whole lot of logistics to, to, to sustain a protest for a long period of time. And where does all this expertise come from? It comes from NGOs, certain NGOs, I would imagine, which are linked to certain foreign governments. So that's how there is this foreign interference that's happening in India's internal affairs. So that is the reason why the government will have its eyes on the NGOs. I, I heard recently that there was uh, some restrictions that were made, that were placed on certain NGOs. The thing is, uh, that is problematic because if you place too many restrictions, then these foreign powers, they will complain and they will, uh, they will say that India is sliding down under the, in the democratic, in the democracy index. India is no longer a democracy. It's an autocracy. It's a fascist nation. It is a dictatorship. I mean, this is what the Western media keeps saying day in and day out. And the moment you do this, there'll be more of that happening. So, so if India is placing some restrictions on NGOs, it will be because of this only. Now, I would wish that there should be a law that is passed in India that no NGO is allowed to operate if it if it receives funds from abroad. Right, that's how it should be. There should also be a law that says no political party should be allowed to receive funds from abroad. Because all of that is nothing but interference, foreign interference in, in India's internal affairs. 
as of today, India is most likely not in a position to pass such a law because of pressure from, from outside countries. So that's where we are today. So that is a bit, a little about the restrictions on NGOs and what NGOs how are and what they actually represent. I am a Swiss-born Indian. Whenever I am at an airport, the airport security sometimes mistreats me until I show them a Swiss passport. Raising the tantalizing question of why Indian people need a visa to uh, and go through all these difficulties, whereas people from other countries like Argentina or Mexico who are much poorer enjoy visa-free access to the EU and even some to the US. You know, there's a word for this. It's called racism. It's all about skin color. Argentina is a Christian country. Most of the people are of Europe, European origin. Most of the people who are visible are of European origin. Their natives have been mostly wiped out. When it comes to Mexico, Mexico is a brown country. They look like Indians. You go to the US, if you're Indian, people will mistake you for a Mexican very often. But Mexico, again, is a Christian country. It's under the US umbrella. So that's why things are better for the Mexicans if they travel to Europe, etc. But for other brown people, from the Middle East, from India, etc. There are all kinds of restrictions. So let's understand how these restrictions started. A hundred years ago, or 150 years ago, there were no restrictions. There was no requirement to carry a visa or a passport or anything. You could just travel, right? In the old days, the, the system of passports and visas did not exist. When Mohandas Gandhi went to the UK and from there he went to South Africa, he did not care, he did not have to apply for a visa to go to all these places. He traveled through various other countries as well while going there. There was no requirement of a visa. So how did all this start? How did these borders become so uh, so inviolable? And how did uh, this system of uh, having to apply for a visa before you were able to go to a country? How did all this emerge? So what happened is that in the last 500 years, the Christian countries, the Western countries, the European countries, they colonized most of the civilized world. They destroyed the local culture, civilization, and they plundered and stole all the wealth. They, they reduced all of these countries, all of these cultures and civilizations to destitution, especially India. They stole all the wealth and all of the wealth of the East and of Africa as well was transferred into the hands of a small percentage of the world's population. The white-skinned people, the Europeans, and their colonies in the US, in North America, South America, etc. So these are the people who now held the vast majority of the world's wealth. Now, if you allow people to travel unrestricted, then you will find that people who have been made very poor will want to now travel to the countries where the wealth resides so that they can enjoy the better living standards. So to prevent that from happening, all these restrictions were put in place. And because it was the black-skinned people of Africa and the brown-skinned people of, of, uh, of Asia, mostly India, who had been, uh, whose whose countries had been destroyed and whose wealth had been stolen. So the majority, the, the strongest restrictions were placed on these people, on Indians and on Africans. So today you find that there is this discrimination. If an Indian wants to go to the US, if an Indian wants to, wants to go to the EU or whatever, they have to fill up a long visa form and wait for, I don't know how, how long it is, a week, a month, whatever, for their, uh, they have to go to the embassy, they have to stand in, in queue, they have to answer a questionnaire or interview or whatever, and there's a whole number of documents you have to provide to them just to pro prove that you are uh, worthy of coming to their great country. But when they come to India 
when Americans or Europeans come to India, that they they complain about the visa process. Oh, it's so tedious, and we have we were made to uh, fill up this form and things like that. We would, we are accustomed to walking into a country and not needing a visa. So they have these double standards. When it comes to Indians, they want to have they want to put all kinds of restrictions in place. But when they come to India, they want to have visa free free access to the country. And when they don't get it, they complain. They crib about it, right? So there is the there is the concept of reciprocity, right? Which India doesn't follow actually. We give too many benefits to these people while we don't get those benefits. So this is all nothing but racism. Uh, it all depends to a large extent on the color of your skin. If you are born in Europe, you will know that racism has always been latent in Europe. It's always been like kind of below the surface. But nowadays, in times of war, it's all come out into the open. It's very ugly. Racism. I mean, we believe, we in India believe that uh, Europe is a very progressive place. There is no racism. There is equality, egalitarianism. Very liberal place. Very liberal countries, especially the Western European countries. That is not quite the case, my friends. If you live in those countries, you will see that there is a latent racism always below the surface. You are always treated a little differently depending on the color of your skin. And that's how how it has always been. So I'm not surprised that you are a Swiss-born person and yet you face all these problems with airport security. I am sure elsewhere too. Uh, so so this is what's known as racism. It's a, it's a mostly a European thing. It is they who have invented this. Other countries are not racist, you know, not to that extent at least, not to that extent. The way the Europeans are racist, you will find Russians are not racist. You will not see racism among Russians, which is strange. I mean, let me give you an example. When the Indian Prime Minister goes to Washington, see his body language. Is it comfortable or is it kind of not very comfortable? Now see the Indian Prime Minister's body language when he goes to the, to the Middle East, when he meets the head of state of the UAE or, or Saudi Arabia. See the body language. It's way more relaxed and comfortable. See the Indian Prime Minister's body language when he meets the President of Russia, Vladimir Putin. It's very relaxed, very comfortable. But when the Indian Prime Minister goes to, let's say, Washington and meets the US President, the body language is, is much more tense. So you can see, you know, I mean, these are very subtle things, but you can observe that. So there is a very, uh, there is a difference in uh, the the way indians are treated in certain countries especially in the in what we know as the west compared to other countries so that's just how it is okay uh, since kennedy offered nuclear technology in 1960-61 to india before the chinese invasion and nehru refused it after the war but after the war why did they change their stance and oppose our nuclear program it's believed that they were behind the death of Homi Baba and tried measures to shut down India's nuclear program. My question is, why did they, did they change their stance? So it is indeed true that US President John F. Kennedy had offered nuclear weapons technology to India in the early 1960s, before the Chinese invasion of India. He had offered to help India create, build, and detonate a nuclear weapon. The, if India had agreed to this, if India had accepted the US offer, India would have been the first Asian nuclear weapons power. Mr. Nehru 
the great Mr. Nehru refused the offer. And uh, as a result, the Chinese became the first Asian nuclear power. If India had nuclear weapons in 1962, the Chinese may not, would probably not have dared to try and invade India. Right. So the Americans wanted India to be the first Asian nuclear weapons power. The Americans wanted India to be an American ally. Mr. Nehru rejected the American offer. In his great wisdom, he was a magnificently wise man. So he, in his, um, uh, as, as a consequence of the great wisdom that he had, he rejected the offer. And then what we saw is that he steered India into an alliance with the USSR. India essentially became a satellite state of the USSR. I know some people don't like me saying it. Deal with it. India became a satellite state of the USSR over time. Right. So the Americans wanted India to be an ally of the US, maybe a satellite state, a client state of the US. But what they saw is that India under Mr. Nehru, very rapidly became a client state or a satellite state of the USSR. So essentially, India went into the enemy camp. The Cold War was already on. Early 1960s, you had the, the Cuban Missile Crisis, right? The Cold War was very much on. It was threatening, threatening to become a hot war. And India had taken unambiguously the side of the USSR and rejected the offer of the US. So India declared itself, sig the signals that India gave to the US was, we are allying with your enemies. So that's very simple. That's why they changed their stance. Right. Initially, the Americans also wanted India to become one of the five permanent members of the, of the UN Security Council. The offer was made to India twice. The second time the offer was made to India was in conjunction with the Russians. The Russians and Americans both offered India a place on the UN Security Council. A permanent place. And Mr. Nehru, again, in his great wisdom, he rejected that. So after seeing all of these rejections, the Americans said there's no point dealing with India and the Congress regime under Mr. Nehru and whoever else. And that's why they quickly changed the stance. And from then on, you saw that the Americans, uh, they, they started cultivating Pakistan. And eventually, they even cultivated the Chinese uh, from the mid-1960s onwards. So that's how it went. But the reason why they changed the stance is very simple. It's because India rejected their offer and became, instead of that, an ally of the USSR. Now, some of you will say, no, no, no. What are you talking about? You are stupid. India was non-aligned. So how can you say India was an ally of the USSR? We had declared, we had said many times we are non-aligned. Are bhai, do you understand the difference between actions and words? Non-alignment was words. But every action that India took was that of an ally and a satellite state of the USSR. Please understand the difference between actions and words. All right. So that is why the Americans very rapidly changed their stance. And then the, uh, the relationship between India and the US became quite adversarial. Swarup says, Stephen Tibbetts, co-founder and chief executive of uh, Ziva Aero, a Tacoma, Washington-based firm, has designed a prototype of a flying saucer-like vehicle which recently had a successful full-scale vertical takeoff. Even the UAE has been working on such vehicles for public transport for since a few years. So do you think such kind of air travel will be the future of traveling in the distant future? No. No, no, no. It will not be the future of traveling on a large scale in the distant future. What these companies are creating is they are creating 
expensive toys for rich people so when you have a helicopter kind of thing or a hovercraft kind of thing or something that that looks like a ufo it's gonna be something that everybody desires but only rich people can afford it cannot be something that can be used for mass transportation even the biggest planes that we have today the boeing 747s and the airbus 400s a400 or whatever they can be afforded mostly only by the rich people of the world right i mean the common man and woman in, in india would rarely travel by air right maybe once a year maybe once in 2 3 years if if at all so even regular air transport is at least for countries like india kind something of a luxury to some extent it's it, the things are changing now even common people can afford to travel by air things are changing but until very recently it was kind of a luxury now these vehicles that these people are uh, creating flying saucer like things these are going to be really expensive things what you need is mass transportation mass transportation means large vehicles like trains that can transport 1000 2000 people at one time and that are inexpensive and that are available on demand i mean let's say you want to go let's say you are living in bangalore or chennai and you wake up tomorrow morning and you have this this urge to go to let's say guwahati and let's say then okay you go to the station you buy a ticket and two hours later you're on a train and you can go there so if that sort of situation is accessible to you that is mass transportation that is mass transportation transportation that is available and accessible when it comes to a flying saucer like vehicle it's going to cost a lot of money only few a few people will be able to afford it and it's not going to be a solution for mass transportation it's going to be a one seater or two seater or maybe four seater or maybe 20 seater and it's going to be really expensive so it is not going to be the future of air travel it, these are just expensive toys the future of air tra- tra- the future of uh, traveling transportation in the in the long run in my opinion most likely will be ground based travel maybe high speed railways maybe underground railway systems or whatever but something that tra- that can carry lots of people large numbers of people at speed at scale and bring them from point a to point b in a reasonably short amount of time so all these fancy vehicles they are, they are nothing but toys for rich people so that's how i see it Archit says we all know our gdp was more than 30 33% of the world's gdp at least maybe more but what about our per capita gdp do you think that was a boastful number too given how this land has always had a huge population interesting question so uh india see if you look at the uh, statistics the data that uh, angus madison the economist uh, put forth uh you will see that according to his calculations projections which is the gold standard in uh, the economic history of the world according to his calculations india always had a gdp of at least one third of the world's gdp until the 1700s at which time our gdp dropped very precipitously because of the british destruction of india's economy and the country now india's population if we look at the population of history of india india's population was typically uh, when the british left india undivided india had a population of approximately between 300 and 350 million which is if it was 300 million it is one fourth of what india's population is today right 
and if you look at the large scale history of india so let's go back a few thousand years if we go back about to around 3000 bc or 3500 bc we had the saptasindhu civilization saptasindhu phase of india civilization the saraswati sindhu phase of india civilization with the which the western people call the indus valley civilization or the harappan civilization which is nothing but one phase of india's civilization so if you go back to that time india was demonstrably demonstrably the most technologically advanced culture in the world a fully industrialized fully urbanized civilization with the highest technology available at that time anywhere in the world and at that time i can guarantee that india's gdp would have exceeded half the world's gdp and at that time it is calculated it is estimated that india's population was around 5 million 5 million not 300 million not 1.4 billion which we are reaching today it was merely 5 million so more than half the world's gdp for 5 million people can you imagine the per capita gdp which we would have had so uh, we have to put things in perspective this is a very interesting question i mean i wish that people would think more along these lines so we have to look at what the population was like from the best estimates that uh, historians and scholars have so the best estimate for india's population uh, during the saraswati sindhu phase was about 5 million people and india's gdp was more than 50% of the world's gdp for sure maybe 2/3 of the world's gdp because that's how advanced india was so the per capita gdp would have been ridiculously high more than any other country even today so these are not boastful numbers the numbers are actually under representations of what india would actually be india's gdp would actually be because even if you look at the data that angus madison has put forth there are all there are a number of assumptions and oversimplifications that are not quite accurate when it comes to india so even the data for the last 2000 years which says that india was about one third of the world's gdp is kind of an under representation what of what it actually would have been even in the last 2000 years the actual data the actual gdp of india would have been closer to i would say 40 to 45% of the actual of the entire world's gdp most likely more likely so that's what i can offer but in the past uh before 0 ad or 0 bc whatever you call it india's economy was even more advanced and uh, the per capita gdp would have been really really high and again by archit there are always claims that education in ancient india was great but very limited to certain sections of the society leaving a great a large part uneducated what's your take on on that do, do you think that might be true i don't necessarily see that as bad even if true china still does this which and and so on and so forth just curious how you think india dealt with ancient india dealt with education so there are claims that certain sections of uh, india's in of of uh, historians and researchers they make these claims that india was a very uh, inegalitarian society unequal society you had this caste system in india are bhai caste system casteism brahminical society brahminical patriarchy brahminical dominism uh, domination and the evil brahminical religion which only gave education to the brahmins and maybe the kshatriyas and everybody else was was denied education even women were treated horribly in india because india is a terrifyingly patriarchal society right so that's what these people claim 
and that's what we are taught in our education system we are taught all of these things as if they were facts but on what basis do they make these claims if you make a claim it has to be on the basis of data of information where is this data on what basis have they claimed that it's it's in so and so period of time we had these problems that india did not denied education to large parts of society and denied education to girls and women where is the data that supports this claim did they pull this data out of thin air or somewhere else there is no data that supports these claims that people these people make the only data that is available about not ancient india but more recent india is the data that is available in this uh, this book the beautiful tree by dharampal and he meticulously and painstakingly collected all the data that the british themselves had documented so before the british destroyed india's education system they spent several de- decades collecting data about the kind of education system india had what what were what kind of education was imparted what was the demographics that was included in that and so on and so on so on so forth so according to the data that the british themselves collected before they destroyed in india's education system everybody got an education the so called high castes the so called low castes everybody got education in the uh, temple schools so the the place so india was a land of temple temples until recently today we have other things that are cropping up temples uh, no, no more new temples are coming up now in india but india has for thousands of years been a land of temples every city every village every every street corner had a temple and temples were not just places of worship these were centers of education so in small temples there is a saying in tamil that don't go and live in a village where there is no temple right so this is not a secular saying this is a hindu saying isn't it so <clears throat> so what you see is that what what was there is that these temples there were these were centers of education that's where all the local kids would go in the local temple to get to gain their basic education so what what they were taught was they were taught sanskrit they were taught the mother tongue and they were taught basic mathematics and uh, whatever else right uh, uh, whatever other other basic topics were taught so the main basic things basic education and if you were good in in studies and you wanted to pursue a higher education you would go to one of the great temples so great temples were not everywhere but in every uh, you could say district kind of area you would have one great temple so you would go there to receive a higher education and if you wanted to uh, to receive an even higher education you would go to one of the mahaviharas or one of the great universities like nalanda takshashila and so on and so forth so that's how the system was india was the most educated land in the world the most educated culture in the world right so according to the statistics the british collected in which dharampal has presented everybody got an education the so called high castes the so called low castes boys girls everybody got an education go buy the book and read it all right so that's the only data we have and and the other data which is like uh, data that comes from foreigners is uh, uh, the the accounts of people like xuanzang and fahian etc the chinese pilgrims and monks who used to come to india to acquire education because india was the the home of education right so they used to they they would come to india to to acquire knowledge wisdom education and they also observed that everybody was educated right they you, you even had female monks and all that even in the vedic times you had female rishikas many of the verses of the rigveda itself the oldest literary text in human history 
many of the verses of the Rig Veda have been composed by females, by ladies. The Rig Veda is the holiest book in what we now call Hinduism. Show me any other religious book in which a significant portion of the text has been composed by women. So all of these claims that, 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 that these so-called scholars and historians make, these are outright lies and fabrications. So fabrications. Show me the basis on which they make these claims. These are merely opinions. And what they do is this. One person puts forth an opinion without any basis, without any factual basis. Then 15 other people, and this person puts forth the opinion in the form of a, of a paper, a research paper. That research paper, paper is published in some journal, even though there is no factual basis to the claim, but they publish it anyway. Then 15 other so-called scholars will cite that paper, that research paper, and write new articles, which all uh, make the same claim. Again, repeat the same claim. So now we have 15 or 16 papers which make the same false claim. Then lots of other people will cite those 15 papers and they will create a citation ring around that. And so many papers will now, after a few years, be there, which all make the claim and they cite each other. So they give references to each other, but it all starts with one false claim. And that's how these narratives are constructed in, in academia. So academia is rotten. Whether it is the West, whether it is in India, whether it's anywhere else, academia is rotten. The entire academic, academic system in the world today is built upon the foundations of the Western system. The Western colonial system that was introduced in India in the 19th century. We still follow the same system today in the 21st century. The same old master's degree in English literature and all that nonsense which people have to go through. So these are all lies and fabrications. Please don't believe them because there is no factual basis to these claims. Okay, Muhammad Danish Khan says, "What do you think India would be like today if it had not if if it had not been colonized? Would it be a single country or multiple kingdoms? Well, what India would be, whether it would be a single political unit or multiple multiple units, India would still be a single civilization. Today, India no longer has the status of a civilization. Let me explain why." A civilization has certain characteristics. It is characterized by high levels of education, high levels of prosperity, high living standards, a single unifying civilizational language and a single unifying culture which may manifest itself in various forms. So single unifying civilizational language and all of its institutions should be based in its own indigenous culture. If we look at India, we have a unifying language today which is English. I am forced to speak to you in English, right? We have institutions and laws which are based in Western values and Western principles and Western morality. India's constitution is Western in origin. It is not Indian in origin, right? It is not based on Indian values, on Indian cultural and civilizational values. India's institutions, whether it is the parliament, whether it is the judiciary, they are all based on Western institutions. India's laws are not based in Indian values. So India is a thoroughly colonized country. And once you have th this kind of situation, you are no longer a civilization. So India officially ceased to be a civilization in 1944, uh, 1947. Until 1947, India was a struggling civilization. But in 47, the death of the civilization was announced when India 
uh, accepted British dominion status. And in 50, 51 or whatever, whichever year it was, we adopted this ridiculous constitution undemocratically. And since then, we have no longer been a civilization. We have been a colonized Western, a, a colonized nation state, Westphalian nation state. So if India had not been colonized, whether it was, whether if India today was a single political entity, like the Mauryan Empire, the Kushan Empire, whatever, or whether it was a, a loose coalition of various kingdoms, India would still be a single civilization. So that is what we have lost due to colonization. And today we are becoming even more ruthless. All of our values are our Western values. All the entertainment we watch is rooted in foreign culture. Uh, the education system is making us more ruthless. And this is the situation we are in right now. If it persists like this for another hundred years, everything that is left of Indian culture will be gone. So that's where we are today. But I am still hopeful that things may, may turn around. So India may have been today a single country, a, a single kingdom, you could say, or empire, whatever, or maybe a bunch of mul multiple kingdoms, whatever. But it would have still, be, still been a single indigenous civilization, which we no longer are today. So that's an interesting question uh, Danish has asked. Vishal says Gautam Buddha was called Shakyamuni, the sage of the Shakyas. My question is, were the Shakyas and the Sakas, the Scythians, the same? Was Gautam Buddha a Scythian? That's an interesting question. So even I used to believe, you know, 10 years ago or so, that the Shakyas and the Sakas or the Shakas were the same. It may not be the case. So, the, so who were the Scythians, the, 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 the Sakas or the Shakas? These were Indian origin nomadic people. So in the old days, in, in the days of the Vedas, in the, in the Puranas, in the Vedic age, there was this, there were multiple waves of migration out of India to the West, to the North and the West. And the people who migrated out of, out of India went and settled down in Persia, to the West of Persia, and all across Central Asia. And after a few years, after a few decades, maybe a couple of centuries, they kind of gave up some of the values and the, some of the traditions of India. So they no longer followed the Vedic lifestyle properly. So that's why they were given the, the, the name of Mlechas. But they were still Indian origin people. The entirety of Central Asia was Indian origin. You still find ruined stupas and ruined temples all across Central Asia, everywhere. You even find uh, ruins of Hindu temples in uh, Georgia and Armenia and, and, and places like that in the Caucasus region. And there must be many more. So the whole of Central Asia was Indic, was Indian. And you had these nomadic people who were of Indian origin. We know what they looked like based on their DNA analysis. They had light brown skin, brown eyes and dark hair. And they were reasonably tall. So these, are the, these were known as the Scythians. The Scythians ruled the Central Asian steppe region, right? They were nomads and they were very powerful warriors, but they did not stay in one place at one, uh, for long. They were nomads. Uh, so these were the Scythians and eventually about 2000 years ago, they reintroduced themselves into India. They conquered parts of Northern and Western India and they assimilated very harmoniously within the Indian population because they essentially were the same people, the same culture. There was no significant difference between Indians and Scythians genetically or culturally. So the assimilation was very harmonious. And you had many great Scythian kings in Western India. Rudra, Daman, Rudra. I forget all, forget all the names, but you had these great Mahakshatrapas. 
especially in Western India, in Gujarat, Saurashtra, etc. They controlled India's great ports that did all the trade with Rome, etc. Egypt and so on. So these were the Scythians, Indo-Scythians and the Central Asian Scythians, the same people. One could also consider the Kushans to be the easternmost Scythians. So these guys, the Scythians entered, re-entered India about 2,200 or so years before today, approximately. Now, Gautam Buddha, according to conventional historiography, according to the conventional chronology of, of India, of India's history, he lived about two hundred, two and a half thousand years before today, around 500 BC, thereabouts. Uh, that's what uh, the official consensus is. So if he lived in 500 BC, approximately, that would predate the time of the Scythian uh, reintroduction into India by about three centuries, right? Because during the Mauryan era or before the Mauryan dynasty, before the uh, before the Mauryas, you had the Nanda dynasty, right? During the time of the Nanda dynasty, there was no uh, significant intrusion of Scythians into India, none whatsoever, almost, right? And so, therefore, it is uh, unlikely that Gautam Buddha. Siddhartha Gautam, the prince of the Shakya people, would have been a Scythian. So maybe it's just a coincidence that you had a, a clan of people or a community of people, Kshatriyas, warriors, who were called the, the Shakya people and who's, and uh, to whom Gautam Buddha belonged. So most likely, I, I would say that the Shakyas of northern India, present-day Nepal and, and Bihar, etc., most likely they were not Scythians. Right? So that's what I can conclude based on the chronology and all of this historical background. So most likely Gautam Buddha was not a Scythian. He was a northern Indian Kshatriya from a princely, uh, from an arist aristocratic royal family. Okay, Akash says, why was Albert Einstein so adamant on the cosmological constant that the universe is static and later he had to delete it from his field equations? What does it say about the scientific community's temperament against the inflow of new and exceptional ideas? Uh, one more example could be that of Avi Loeb, who says Oumuamua could be an extraterrestrial object, but he was completely sidelined. Uh, P.S. It would <laughs> be great if you could call Avi to a podcast. He is a great speaker. Explains complex ideas beautifully. Okay, interesting. Uh, thank you for the recommendation. Uh, let's see if I can uh, do that. So the question is about the uh, cosmological constant. So what is this cosmological constant? So in 1915, Albert Einstein published his general theory of relativity. In 1905, he published the special theory. In 1915, he published the general theory of relativity. In the general theory of relativity, you have the very important equation called the field equation of general relativity, which relates the mass, energy, mass and energy with gravity. And it replaced the older uh, law of gravitation, which is Newton's law of gravitation. So what you have, according to the Einstein field equation, is that the curvature of space-time is intricately uh, related to the amount of matter and energy that is passing through that uh, that region of space-time, right? So that's the Einstein field equation. If you want to understand what the equation is, it says r mu nu minus one half r g mu nu is equal to eight pi eight pi g above above c upon c raised to four times t mu nu. So that is the uh, field equation. It's not a single equation. It's a set of 10 equations. Looks very simple. It's a system of 10 partial differential equation uh, equations, which relate the mass and energy to the curvature of space-time. Right. So this uh, 
set of equations it matches newton's law of gravitation for weak gravitational fields now what we find so what albert einstein did is that he uh, he what he did was he approximated the universe as having a constant density in all directions so if you look at the universe it has mass in some places it is empty in some places but if you zoom out to very large scales then you find that it has you could approximate it as having a constant mass energy density in all directions so einstein did that approximation and he was able to solve the equations for a simplified toy universe with constant density everywhere and what he found is that the uni the equations the solutions they give you something they will either cause the universe to contract or expand right so that's what his equations were telling him that the universe will either contract or expand but in those days in 1950s in 1915 in the in maybe in 1920 the data the information that we had was that the universe was static it was unchanging it was neither expanding nor contracting those days the only knowledge we had was that of the milky way galaxy and we thought scientists in those days thought that the milky way was the entire universe right so that was the scientific consensus that's what the best observations showed now in the 1920s edwin hubble an american uh, astronomer he uh, took he uh, he observed that the milky way was just one galaxy there were lots of galaxies beyond the milky way and he also discovered that these galaxies beyond the milky way were all getting more and more distant from us they were all receding from us in all directions which indicates that the universe is not static it is expanding right so before this information was available einstein realized that his field this he his field equations they would make the universe expand or contract uh, so what he did was he introduced an an additional term which is which is the cosmological constant and what this constant does is to is that in order to counteract the contraction of the universe it produces an a net outward force it's like a repulsive gravity kind of force to balance out the contraction of the universe right so that's what it did and later on when he when it was discovered that the universe is actually expanding then he realized that my field equations were telling me this all the time and i i inserted this equation which which with this this term in the equation which may not have been necessary so he called the cosmological constant that he inserted into the field equations his greatest blunder right so that's what he did it is uh, denoted by the, the by the greek term lambda now in the late 1980s or late 1990s it was discovered that the universe is not just expanding but the expansion of the universe is accelerating the universe is expanding faster and faster the expansion is accelerating and this term the cosmological constant that had been deleted from the field equations now had to be reintroduced because it because it represents an uh, an anti gravity kind of force a negative gravity kind of force that causes the expansion of the universe so einstein's greatest blunder actually <laughs> was valid right and that's what we nowadays consider to be dark energy so nobody forced albert einstein to delete the cosmological constant from his field equations he did that himself 
because it was discovered new data came into uh, was was new data was made available and based on the new data he realized that there was no need for it but after his death in the late 90s it it was again realized with the introduction of uh, of even more data that yes we need such a term in the einstein field equations because the universe is expanding and the exp- ex- expansion is accelerating so that is the story in brief in rough about the uh, cosmological constant now when it comes to the scientific community the temperament against like akash says inflow of new and exceptional ideas it's always been there whether it is the scientists whether it is it is any other community there's always this resistance towards new ideas nobody likes new ideas for instance we have had this stranglehold of the of the string theory mafia in theoretical physics for many decades if you look at the us most of the funding in in physics in theoretical physics goes into string theory so if you want to have a career in theoretical physics physics in the us you need to be in string theory these days it's been like that for a very long time nowadays there are questions have been raised about it and all so it's always been like that so there is always this group think mentality there is always this thinking by consensus and uh, that's always been there so and that that's one of the reasons why uh, there is no new there's been no new real breakthrough in theoretical physics since 1980 since uh, since the theory of inflation was introduced by uh, alan guth there was 1980 or 81 after that there has been no new genuine breakthrough theoretical breakthrough that is supported by uh, experimental observational evidence since 1980 or 81 so theoretical physics has hit a brick wall because of this group think mentality because of the temperament against the inflow of new and exceptional ideas and like you say uh, avilob said that oumuamua could be an extraterrestrial object and the entire scientific community condemned that why it is certainly possible it could be an extraterrestrial alien object but uh, so there was a very very strong backlash against this theory which is perplexing that's not how you sh- you're supposed to behave as a scientist so you have all these problems in science today akash again says what is the definition of life according to science i read there is no consensus on it death is defined as irreversible cessation of all functions of the brain my question is what keeps us alive and what dies when someone dies because according to the bhagavad gita it's the divine soul that allows the functioning of the insentient matter which we call body and even for layman it sounds extremely commonsensical maybe even except maybe for militant atheists okay there is no signif- there is no one definition of life according to science if you look at it from the perspective of neuroscience there is a certain definition if you look at it from the perspective of biochemistry there is a certain definition if you look at it from the perspective of physics of thermodynamics there is a, a different perspective a different definition so the mainstream definition of life is more bio biochemical in nature life is uh, seen as a biochemical process which itself is problematic because the biochemistry can stop for some time and if it is see for instance there have been instances of people who uh, went into a coma or, or went into a shock kind of uh, state their heart stops and their heart doesn't beat for like 15 20 minutes and then they are successfully revived by shocking their heart or whatever 
and then they are brought back to life. So if the definition is a biochemical definition, which would indicate the, the, that the heart would stop and various biochemical processes would, would, would stop, then the person would have died, would have been considered to be dead. And then when the heart restarts after 20 minutes and the consciousness comes back, does it mean that the person came back from death? Which is not quite true, right? So there are problems in all the various definitions of life. And the reason for that is that life is not a substance. It is, it is a process. What exactly the process is, we don't quite know. We don't quite know. We don't understand the body. We don't understand the body well at all. If you, uh, there is this guy, very famous guy. What's his name? Yuval Noah Harari. He says, <laughs> he says that the human body is nothing but a hackable machine. The human body is, a, it's an animal that can be hacked. There is no such thing as the spirit or the soul. It's uh, all just a, just a set of systems that can be hacked. That's what he says. So I don't agree with this sort of definition. The human body is not a, a machine with a set of systems that are interconnected. Lots of scientists have such uh, perspectives. Lots of scientists have very different perspectives, but but the, but those perspectives now become mainstream. See, in the West today, you have this commercialization. There is this reduction of the human being to a commodity. You are just one. Uh, you are some, you are simply part of the big market, and they want to commodify everything. Even the uh, even the pharmaceutical industry is commodified. Even healthcare is commodified. So they want to hack human beings. They want to even they want to reduce human beings to mere numbers and and commodities. And in that system, uh, the idea of the spirit and the soul is very problematic because then you have to treat human beings and all life differently, not just as numbers and commodities. The problem is that from the from the perspective of science, there is no definition of life. There is no definition of soul. There is no definition of spirit. So now when we talk about the Bhagavad Gita, we are no longer talking about science. So we have to understand this very, very, very uh, carefully that science is about, I have said this many times, let me repeat it. Science is about physical uh, what is science about? Science about is, is about physical objects and uh, observable and measurable phenomena. Spirit, spirituality is about non-physical objects also and non-observable non phenomena also. So when you talk about the soul and the spirit, we are no longer talking about science. We are talking about either philosophy or spirituality. Right? So from the perspective of science, there is no definition of soul or spirit because a soul or a spirit cannot be observed, it cannot be measured. Right? So, uh, so you have scientists who say that the human emotions are nothing but chemical reactions. I don't agree with that. It's as if we understand everything and that's all it is. We don't understand the brain. We don't understand the mind. We don't understand the body. We don't understand our genes. More than 95% of the genome is not understood at all. And they call it the dark matter of the genome. And yet people are trying to hack the, the human genome and do all the genetic engineering. They don't even understand what could happen, what could be the consequences. You understand less than 2% of the human genome, but you want to start hacking around. So that is the kind of approach that we have today. Without understanding things, we want to start modifying things. Right? So the truth is, we understand almost next to, to nothing about our genome. 
we understand next to nothing about our neurochemistry about the human brain about the human mind we don't know what consciousness is we don't have a definition of consciousness is consciousness an emergent phenomenon that emerges out of the complexity of our of our brain or is it something else altogether we don't know we don't have the answer we don't even have a proper definition of life i mean viruses according to various definitions of life viruses are half living half dead they do have dna they do reproduce but they have some characteristics that are more consistent with the properties of crystals and non living objects than living objects so this is a complex field life doesn't have a clear definition the consciousness itself which does exist we know it exists so it is something that does exist it is not an unmeasurable phenomenon it is an observable phenomenon but we don't quite have a definition of that and maybe the consciousness is what is connected to what is known in philosophy and spirituality and religion as the soul or the spirit so we don't quite know our our understanding of science is very rudimentary it is very limited there are plenty of scientists who like to prevent uh, who like to pretend like we like science can explain everything science cannot explain lots of things it doesn't mean that science is wrong it means that our level of intelligence is able to perceive only a certain amount of science and the and that our understanding of science is very limited it doesn't mean science is wrong maybe in the future science will be able to deal with things like consciousness and other such things as well so that's what i can say i don't know what keeps us alive what dies when someone dies we no but no scientist has the answer uh, our ancients our philosophers our 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 great gurus rishis etc did have did have the answers those answers can be found in our scriptures in our upanishads in the vedas in the bhagavad gita etc but that cannot be brought into the realm of science because it is not science the, the vedas the bhagavad gita these are spiritual and philosophical texts civilizational and cultural texts these are not scientific texts so science is very limited in its scope and science cannot explain what life and death are what the spirit is what the soul is if it does exist and what consciousness is which does exist so these are the the significant limit, limitations that science uh, is constrained by okay sanathoibi says the chinese were and are still a high level society they have diversities in their food attire culture and even variations in the school of thought and philosophy confucianism and taoism etc they relatively opt for an ideal peaceful life so why did they adopt communism midway does it aid the chinese government to reach their goals faster i see communism as creating tension among its people and the reason for their aggressiveness please shed some light please understand this the chinese people did not decide one day to hold an election and decide that yes based on the result of the election we will all adopt communism now that's not what happened it is the chinese communist party that won the chinese civil war it defeated the kuomintang it took control of the country by force and imposed communism which was its ideology on the people of china nobody was given a choice whether whether you accept or not everybody had to accept it because they had the power of the gun 
What did Mao Zedong say? He said, political power flows from the barrel of a gun. So communism was imposed top-down on the Chinese people by the Chinese Communist Party after the Chinese Communist Party's victory in the Chinese Civil War when they defeated the Kuomintang and exiled them to the island of Formosa, now known as Taiwan. So the Chinese people did not adopt anything. They were made to swallow communism wholesale by force by the Chinese Communist Party. That is what happened. All right. And today, the Chinese... the, the Today, China is no longer a communist country. China is an imperial system today. The Chinese president, Mr. Xi Jinping, is essentially the emperor of China. And they no longer have this communist model of collective property, collective wealth, uh, and all of that. China is a capitalist society today. An out-and-out capitalist society, and yet a very controlled economy. And all the power resides in the hands of the Chinese Communist Party. So it is no longer a communist country. It is an imperial system. It is a proper imperial system. They have reverted to the system they have always followed for the last two and a half thousand years. That's what China is today. So they went through a, through a phase of communism under Mao Zedong. After Mao Zedong died with the uh, ascent of Deng Xiaoping in China, the system was transformed. They slowly moved to a state-controlled capitalist system. So that's what we see today. And they they, uh, they tried to uh, copy the Singapore system to a large extent. The system that was implemented by uh, Lee Kuan Yew in Singapore, which completely transformed Singapore in just a couple of decades. So that's what happened in China. China is not a communist country anymore. And the Chinese people had no say in what happened there. It was something that the Chinese Communist Party imposed on the country. All right. Dungar Singh Chauhan says, I sometimes think there is no meaning to my life because I don't know about the very next moment of my life. No matter what I become or gain in my life, but one day I'll be gone. None of these things will have any impact on me after I'm gone. I don't even know whether individually individuality will exist or not. I can't focus on my studies, nor do I find any aim of my life, before, because I am foreseeing that there is no meaning to this material world. Then I naturally tend to move towards spirituality. Sir, do you get such thoughts? How do you deal with it? Interesting uh, question by Dunga Singh Johan. Uh, so what you are describing is known in some quarters as nihilism, that life has no meaning, existence has no meaning. What's the point of doing whatever we do? What's the point of existence? I have never personally gone through that phase. Um, and you. So the thing is this. Um, there is no meaning to the material world, all that. I can't... The, the thing is this. See, every single person in the history of, the, of humanity has died. Right? So death is inevitable. But that doesn't mean that we have to think about death all the time. Just as we are born, one day we die. That's how it is. And the, nobody is exempt from that uh, from from that so one day everybody is going to be gone but it doesn't mean that our life our existence whatever however long it lasts is meaningless right um the thing the trick is to find meaning the trick is to find your own purpose in life everybody has a certain purpose and how do you find your purpose in life it's by 
looking inward first of all trying to understand who you really are truly deep inside see every person is unique every person has a unique personality and character i know for a fact that i am today at this age the same person exact same person i was when i was 2 years old i have acquired a whole lot of knowledge i have acquired a whole lot of behavioral traits i am wiser with the years i have acquired certain maybe uh, behavioral traits and all that certain attitudes but who i am deep inside is still the same as what i was when i was 2 years old there's been no change really so we are all something unique and whatever is intrinsic to us never changes throughout our life and to find our purpose in life we have to first look inward and and find out who we really are and the problem with most people all of us mostly is that we never get the time to spend alone with ourselves and to introspect we are always interacting or consuming things consuming information consuming entertainment music whatever and the problem with today's entertainment is it imposes this uh, attitude or this mindset of nihilism on, on all of us recently very recently couple of weeks ago less than a week ago i went and watched this hollywood movie batman the latest batman movie my goodness how depressing that movie was dark nihilistic they are glorifying uh, depression they are glorifying mental illness they are showing that relationships have no meaning the world has no meaning the, your life has no meaning even if you may love somebody you should not be with them that sort of thing so that's what hollywood is glorifying today and the more we consume this this sort of entertainment the more we're going to feel that way right the truth is that life is beautiful life can be beautiful life should be beautiful life can be and should be meaningful but you will not find your meaning and purpose in life unless you spend some time alone with yourself and try to understand who you really are and the best way to spend a useful meaningful life and to be happy is to help others and serve society in some form in some way that if you do that if you spend all your time in doing something in in creating something good or contributing something good to society in a way that makes you happy deep inside then you will not find that your life has been mean, meaningless when the time comes to go right so you have to first find what makes you happy everybody has something that makes them happy and that is the meaning that you seek in life that is the meaning you need to find in life so everybody needs to do that especially when you're young when you're young you're confused when you when you are young you are clueless i have been there when you are 18 years old when you are 15 years old when you are 20 years old you are clueless you may think you know lots of things but you are clueless everybody goes to that phase and sometimes you are lost sometimes you don't know what is the meaning in life sometimes you have this enormous pressure of society right do study study for 20 years study 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 10 hours a day 12 hours a day you're not allowed to play sports you're not play, allowed to do anything interesting you forced to study for hours and hours so you don't find anything good in life you don't find anything fulfilling in life and once you're done with your studies you have to go and get a job and then you are under the pressure of the job and your bosses and your coworkers will have all this influence on you so you never find anything fulfilling in life that's the problem that everybody goes through today that's the kind of society that we have created in india today 
Look at the back-breaking burden that we are placing on little kids. School. And after you're done with school, homework and expectations. Exams. Year after year after year. No wonder there is so much depression among kids today. Right? So what we need to do, my dear friends, is to find some time to step back. Breathe. Spend some time alone. Discover who you really are. Discover the spark of divinity inside yourself. Find what really makes you happy and pursue that. You will have pressures from society. You will have pressures from family, from your co-workers and all that. But you have the strength to rise above that also. Discover the source of that strength. And the thing is, yes, we're all going to die. But if you spend a life that is useful to others, if you help others, if you make others happy, if you contribute something good to society, then when the time comes to go, you will have left the world a better place than, than what it was when you came, came into it. So I don't think life is meaningless. I think life is beautiful. I think life is, is meaningful if you can help others, serve others, create something of value that others can benefit from. If you do that, you will have, you will live a meaningful life and when the time comes you'll say okay time's up move on <laughs> so that's what i would say i would say be cheerful be positive and find your purpose in life find what makes you truly happy not momentary pleasure momentary pleasure can be acquired through drugs through alcohol and whatnot but once that temporary high goes away you will feel worse than when you started off what you seek is what makes you happy gradually and over time the happiness increases. Not temporary ups and downs. That is not happiness. That is just mere chemical pleasure. It's hitting the dop dopamine center of your brain. That's not what you want. You want something that really makes you happy in the long run and constant happiness. So that's what you need to discover for yourself. Everybody is different. What makes each individual happy is different. But if you can discover what that is, if you can find what fulfills you and what makes you truly happy, in the long run, you will have found the purpose of your life and then your life will be spent doing something meaningful and good. That is what I can say, my dear friends. So, Dungar Singh Chauhan, I hope you do that and please be positive. Please please be optimistic. Life can be great. Life is, is good and life is great. You, you just have to find your own path in it. All right, my friends, it's almost two hours now. Thank you very much for all the questions. Very interesting questions. I had to, I could only take a few. So let's keep doing this. And I look forward to many more sessions like this with you all. Thank you very much. And I will see you very soon again. Bye.